Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. All right, Alan, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to have you along. We've known each other for many years and been talking about doing this for quite some time. So it is uh, excellent to finally get the opportunity to sit down and have a chat to you. Why don't we start off, tell us a little bit about your range of current professional responsibilities. Yeah, thanks for hosting me, Richard. Um, Currently, I'm involved in uh, three or really four non-executive roles. Uh, After having been in an executive role up to a year ago, um, I'm on the board of a company called Harris Technology, which is listed on the ASX. It's a pure onliner. Uh, growing very, very rapidly. It's uh, amazing. They're doing like 200% growth per annum uh, and quarter by quarter, just breaking the record. So that's a hugely interesting space. Uh, I chair that board. Uh, it's very dynamic and, and it's really exciting work uh, with something different going on every day. And what, what uh, sort of, secondly, sorry, just before we move on from Harris. So what sort of, uh, what do they do? Uh, so they are um, really a pure onliner, a retailer. Right. Um, they really work in the space of the uh, marketplaces. So they have their own e-commerce site, uh, which is about 20% of their sales. But the rest of it all comes through the likes of Amazon, eBay, etc. And they're really aimed at the tech space. So initially IT tech. Uh, but increasingly, they're opening up more categories in gaming, uh, in small home appliances, refurbished devices, etc. So really driving into the growth areas of the market, as, as so to speak. Okay. So really exciting group um, and very interesting, too, because uh, online sales or, or e-commerce is really the place to be at the moment. And it's... Uh, it's got a lot of interest. Fantastic. And you've been on that board just coming up on a year now? Uh, just short of a year, yeah. Hmm. Okay, great. Yeah. All yeah. right. And tell it's going very well. Good stuff. And what about your other ones? So, uh, secondly, I've been on the board for about a year of a company called Renewable Power Australia in the renewable space. Um, it, it essentially is a power plant dry, uh, generating electricity off the back of a sugar mill down in Coomera. Um, and, and, you know, that's one, one part of it. Uh, so it's nice to be in, again, a, a burgeoning uh, economy, such as renewable power. And, um, and, and we have, you're recovering waste to energy. Um, but what that has done is also driven us into a number of deals in the renewable power space. So we're looking at doing M&A deals uh, in this space. Um, I represent a group of uh, investors in Singapore, mm-hmm. a company called, called Gazelle Capital. And essentially, I'm their representative down here for their investments in, in this area. So again, uh, very interesting, keeps me busy, uh, keeps me out of mischief in, in terms of the M&A area and, and looking for opportunities in that space. Again, which is a, an industry which is right on the forefront of growth. Uh, and nice to be involved in that. Okay. And then number three. Thirdly, number three, 
uh, is back to a little bit of my uh, history and my capabilities in distribution. I'm on the board of a company called Pacificon, uh, which is a trans-Tasman uh, tech distributor uh, operating. Their biggest business is New Zealand, but they're operating also in the Pacific Islands and here uh, growing quite quickly in Australia. Uh, dealing with uh, the retailers, the, the CE retailers, such as Harvey Norman, uh, Noel Leemings in, in New Zealand, etc. And again, a company that's growing quite quickly. Uh, we're acquisitive, uh, so I'm looking at M&A deals with them. Uh, and again, you know, back to my history of, of what I've been involved in. So it's pretty interesting and, and right up my street. So that's okay. a good one as well. Great. Yeah. And then last but not least... And then last but not least, I, uh, I run a little company of my own uh, where I'm the storeman, the picker packer, the postman, uh, the chief accountant, the chief executive, and the bottle wash, um, <laughs> which again is in the online space. And it's really uh, retailing uh, connected devices. So very much in the IoT space, uh, in Internet of Things space. Yep. Um, I've been, I've been doing that a little while now, and the business is growing quite nicely. Uh, it's pure online. So we, we, the kind of product groups that we sell, we have a garage door opener, which is connected where you can uh, see or control your garage door from anywhere in the world. You can monitor it. You can get alarms, et cetera, which is kind of an interesting space for people today in, in terms of uh, automating their homes. Uh, and the second space is uh, in baby monitors. And of course, there's no lack of babies being produced in Australia these days. So, so it, again, it's a nice little space. Um, and it's a business which is growing quite nicely. Fantastic. And uh, how long has that business been running for? I've been running that business now uh, around five years. Okay. Uh, initially, it was just a little sideline. Yep. Uh, after I came out of being executive, I put a little more emphasis on it and... Uh, and it started to grow. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's interesting because I was just thinking today, uh, uh, I have a, uh, a cleaning service that comes and cleans my house once a fortnight, and I don't particularly want to give them the key to the house, but that means I have to be at home. But perhaps, you know, I should get one of your garage door openers, and then I suppose I see them on a little monitor, and I go, okay, they're here now, and I can open the garage. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's exactly what you can do. Uh, oh, so, you know... You could, they could call you, or alternatively, uh, you can give them access uh, via the app, and right. they can open it or close it when they want. Uh, but you can also limit to, you know, when they can open it and when they can't. Ah, oh, Alan, I'm a customer. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I would definitely buy one of those. Okay, awesome. Okay, well, that's um, fantastic. And so, uh, you know, obviously, between your own small business and three board roles, I mentioned that uh, you know you're a pretty busy guy. Um, but let's, uh, let's uh, step back in time and learn a little bit about your earlier story, Alan. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you were born, mum and dad, brothers and sisters, and, and let's have a, a journey through uh, your career history. So you, you probably, uh, well, you know, but you can probably hear from the accent that I'm an African refugee. <laughs> I was born in Johannesburg, I grew up in Johannesburg. It was a wonderful time to be in that country. Uh, particularly through the change out of uh, post-apartheid when we really were the rainbow nation. And unfortunately, it's it's not worked out as well as it should have. Um, and the rainbow nation has really become uh, a bit of a problem. So 
it's not a place to go back to. And that hence I'm in Australia these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a great upbringing, of, you know, very akin to the Australian life, outdoor sports, uh, very free and easy. Um, and then when I got to a point where I needed to go to university, I didn't have a choice. My, my father said, which university do you want to go to and which course do you want to do? There wasn't a choice otherwise. Um, I, um, I ended up uh, selecting doing accounting um, and qualified as a chartered accountant. Um, and actually, in those years, we were drafted uh, into the army. Uh, so I did my university first. And then got to the army and, uh, later on um, when I was already married as a, as a, a conscript uh, and spent two years in the army at that point in time, um, a little bit of an active duty because we were up on the border uh, in Southwest Africa. Um, so that was an interesting time of life. Mm. And then I briefly went through the financial roles, um, got pretty bored of it quickly. Uh, another, another month end, another month end. Um, and I went, no, I, I really need to do something else and went selling. Right. Um, picked the computer industry as being highly competitive and something that was the future. And I'm very glad I did. I wouldn't do it any other way these days. Uh, it was a great experience. Uh, and then I worked for a couple of very interesting companies, including ICL, which was the British computing company, uh, and Sperry before they became, but they merged in with Burroughs. And became Unisys. Um, briefly thereafter, I was an entrepreneur on my own. I did a, a management buyout of a company uh, and ran a networking um, installation company or, or um, um, what would you call it, a, a solutions uh, organization. Um, and embarrassingly, we grew too fast and uh, ran out of money. So as an accountant, that's a bit embarrassing, but we had to merge it in because we just had grown so fast um, and everybody knows that you use cash in those situations. So I merged it in with another organization uh, and then finally ended up uh, in South Africa with Philips uh, running their professional businesses. Uh, the biggest one, which was uh, call centers and PABXs and uh, uh, the ICT area Um which was a turnaround. I had turned around a number of organizations before this. Uh, and then the biggest one, obviously, was the Philips one. Um, we turned that around in about an 18-month period from pretty significant losses into profitability. Uh, and it was a great experience, uh, very much B2B, uh, very much in the professional area. Um, I left Philips briefly. Uh, my boss said, you'll be back in nine months. And he was absolutely right because he came back and recruited me. Um, and that's when they recruited me to go to uh, Singapore. Right. Okay. And so uh, this was around the late 90s, early 2000s, correct? I left in 1999 uh, from South Africa right. uh, to go to Singapore. We yep. were, I said to my wife, we'll, we'll go for three years and then we'll come back. Right. Um, how wrong? How wrong could I be? You know, here we are, twenty odd years later, and I'm nowhere near South Africa, having gone through Singapore, Hong Kong, and now Australia. Uh huh. And so the entire seven years with Philips was all in Singapore. So I spent uh, I spent five years uh, with Philips in South Africa. Okay. And then, as I said, nine months away, <laughs> recruited by my ex boss, who said, "Come to Singapore." 
Uh, and it was very interesting. It, it was, uh, again, a turnaround. Uh, Philips had lost $2 billion the year before in their joint venture with Lucent uh, in their mobile phone business. And my boss was then uh, taken in to run it. Uh, he recruited me to go and run the Asia Pacific uh, region and he ran Europe. Uh, and between him, him and I, uh, we turned that business around in, uh, in actually quite quick time. It was about nine months where we started to produce profits again. Um, and for the next four years, I ran their mobile phone business uh, in Asia Pacific. Uh, I ended up running the entire business because uh, uh, my bus left and I took it over and ran it out of Hong Kong uh, and Singapore uh -huh. uh, and then ended up selling that business to the Chinese. So I was tasked by Philips to, uh, to sell it and dispose of it. And I sold it piecemeal to the Chinese, which was a great experience. Uh, I spent um, six months almost permanently in Beijing negotiating with them. And we ended up selling, taking about 280 million euro out of the Chinese for the business. Okay. And was that the, sort of the, the end of your period with Philips then? No. Um, at that point, I, I went and had a chat with Gerard uh, Kleisley, who was then the CEO of Philips and said, what do you want to do with me now? And he, and he actually was very candid. He said, I'm not really sure, but I'll come back to you. <laughs> so, so it was a long trip to Amsterdam and a very short conversation. Um, and then he came back to me and he said, well, uh, you know, the guy that's running uh, the consumer electronics business in Asia at the moment wants to come back to Europe. Um, you're a perfect fit for this. Would you do it? So that mean, meant I didn't move from Singapore. I just took over from him and I ran the consumer electronics business uh, out of Singapore for Asia Pacific, Middle East Africa, which is clearly a hell of a lot of countries. Uh, and I spent a lot of time in the air. I was, I was 70 odd, five, 75 odd percent away of my, uh, from uh, Singapore. I would try and get back every weekend, but sometimes I would, I would miss a weekend or two. Um, and then ran what was essentially a $2 billion organization uh, for Philips in their consumer electronics business. And that I did for the next uh, five years. Right. And so what eventually led you to leave them then? I, I, I love Philips and I still do. It's a wonderful organization and the network that I have with people there is fantastic. Um, but Philips decided at uh, a point in time, and, and their biggest business was their uh, TV business, obviously. They decided to sell their flat panel manufacturing entity to LG, which they had had a joint venture with. Uh, and when they sold that, it was, you know, strategically, it was clear that the, the uh, distribution business or the manufacturing TV business would go unprofitable, uh -huh. uh, which we did. You know, we went from 30% margins to minus 9% margins overnight, uh, principally because we were paying a premium now for the panels. Um, and that really was not fun because you, you really needed to start restructuring the business. You know, I was, I was uh, laying off upwards of 250 people a year over a period of uh, two years, and that was no fun. Uh, so I fell out of love with the organization. I got an approach by Carrier at that point uh, to run their Asia-Pacific business, uh, and I decided to go and, and go to Carrier. So that's when I went across to them. Right. And uh, once again, remaining in Asia, though? 
Once we in, uh, again in Asia, again, it was in Singapore, which was great. I loved Singapore. I loved living there. It was a, just an amazing city. I, I have a tremendous affinity to it. Uh, and I, um, I ran the Asia Pacific business for Carrier for a year going into the financial crisis. Uh, and the financial crisis hit and Carrier decided to close the entire entity, uh, which again was a $3 billion business worldwide. They just right. simply shut shut it down uh, and called it a day. And, and I was first out the door there. So it was 18 months of my life where I kicked my heels around the world. Um, I have to say that Carrie looked after me ext- extraordinarily well, uh, get, you know, gave me a chance to just catch my breath, take some time. I spent some time back in South Africa. I did a b- bit of consulting work for a glass uh, manufacturing group in, uh, in South Africa ended up uh, buying back the international arm for the guy that had started it um, and then moved on and came back to Australia and, and picked up a job with Belkin in Hong Kong uh, about 18 months later. So that's when we went to Hong Kong uh-huh. in 2010. Yeah. And Belkin once again in a very, um, in a similar industry. Yeah, Belkin very much in that similar industry, um, you know, in, in mobile phones, devices, accessories, uh, and IT. Um, so off I went to Hong Kong. Uh, that was a wonderful experience. Uh, I think you earn the right to live in Hong Kong. Um, it's not a place which, which has a lot of social distancing or social bubbles or even time to think sometimes. Uh, but landed in Hong Kong with a business which really needed to grow internationally and particularly uh, in Asia. Uh, of course, those being the key markets were down here where they were doing well already. Uh, but then we opened up the market in for them in India and uh, China in particular. Uh, and then later on in Korea, uh, Taiwan, um, and those grew very nicely. We never really did get into Japan. It's a very difficult market. Um, although latterly they have started to get in there. Mm-hmm. And, and Balkan was very interesting because it was, uh, it was privately owned by the guy that started it, who, as all good people do in California, started it in the back, uh, in his garage of his parents' house. Yeah. Make, making cables. Um, and grew it to, again, uh, worldwide around uh, just over a billion dollars, pretty profitable. Um, And I I did that then for the next uh, four years in Hong Kong, um, Uh growing those markets and and building it. And then what eventually brought you uh, to Brisbane with Cellnet? So um, at that, uh, you you know how American organizations go through phases, uh, and they went through a phase where, um, instead of having three regions, they were going to consolidate down to two regions, which would be Americas and rest of the world. Uh, my region was the smallest, so uh, that uh, said that you know they would consolidate my region into the European region as well. Um, my job then became uh, redundant, and that was a signal for me to come down to Australia. We weren't going to go back to South Africa, mm-hmm. um, so and I wasn't going to retire in Asia. So, you know, where's the best place to go? Clearly Australia, (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. paradise here. And I came down here and started to look at to, you know, what I was going to do either on my own or or otherwise. Um, And then the um, the CellNet uh, opportunity came up. 
somebody called me and said, have you ever looked at Cellnet? I knew of them because of the, the affinity to the industries that I'd been in. Um, I took a look at it. I did some due diligence, uh, talked to the guys. Uh, again, it was a, a pretty strong turnaround. The company was in very, very poor shape, probably about three to six months from closure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it couldn't go any further down, so I took the uh, I took the challenge and um, and went in and started to turn it around. And uh, six years there. So tell us a little bit about um, you know how that business and your role uh, uh, grew over that period. So the business was turning over around uh, 55, 60 million um, when I walked in there. Um, the New Zealand entity was uh, very well run um, and operating profitably. So it didn't need much attention, had a good manager in place. But the Australian business was really on its knees and, and bleeding from every possible place. Um, so, you know, first thing was to determine the team. Uh, which I did, um, worked out which half would be me and uh, be with me and which half would not. Um, the, the half that would not be with me uh, departed. And, uh, you know, that brought the costs down. So we kind of halved the number of people that we had on board uh, and then started to work with the team to get a strategy. Um, what we did was we carved the number of brands which we were representing down from something like 50 to seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then more importantly, we created our own brand, which was 360, which is still around. You can see in all the stores in, in Australia. And it's one of the leading accessory brands in Australia today. We launched that, uh, did all the packaging for it, did all the uh, sourcing uh, in uh, China and Hong Kong, uh, which again, I had a lot of experience in. And again, in around about a 12-month period, we, we managed to turn it around and get it back to be cash positive. Um, we pulled the inventory down from about $17 million to seven uh, and, and just generally brought all the cash back into the business so that you had a platform to be able to then grow from. Um, we then worked on a number of contracts, including in particular the Optus contract, where we got exclusivity with them. Uh, and that was a huge uh, advantage for the company and really started to turn the, the business around to become uh, reasonably profitable. Uh, but it was clear that we needed to grow and we needed to <coughs> de-risk the business some. So we went on an acquisition trail. And over that period uh, after that, um, I, I managed to get three acquisitions under our belt, uh, probably the biggest one being a gaming distributor, which is a company called Turn Left, um, which we acquired uh, and, and bought into the business and then, uh, and then drove that. Um, it is now very profitable and, and driving good profit, profits for the company. Uh, and, you know, just generally got that company back on its feet and, and got the share price back to at least some normality. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, um, you've been able to essentially follow your career through what is largely a very um, um, you know, similar, same industry. Uh, uh, and yet you've done it over, you know, a number of different countries, obviously South Africa and then Singapore and then Hong Kong and then Australia. How, how have you found in terms of your own experience of doing business 
you've had to change the way that you do business depending on where you are and the kind of people you're working with. Have you noticed substantively that, you know, for example, Australia, um, doing business in Australia is very different to these other countries or are there some similarities? What, what would you talk about in relation to that? You know, I would say, look, business is a language uh, which is pretty universal, um, but it's the nuances that count. Uh, and, you know, clearly the nuances in China are, are much more pronounced uh, than they are, let's say, in the UK and the US. Um, and, and indeed, doing business in the UK and the US is, is definitely different. They, they have a different style. Mm -hmm. um, Indians, again, are, are again, completely different. Um, the interesting thing that I found in doing business in China, and I'll kind of concentrate on that because it's big and, and it's uh, topical, is uh, that, that they don't necessarily rely on the contract per se. They rely much more importantly on the relationship. Right. And I think, I think that's something that um, America and China just don't meet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the Americans are all about driving the deal, driving the business, uh, and probably less so about the relationship. Whereas the Chinese are much more about the relationship and whether they can trust you or not. Um, and, and, you know, it's a strange thing, but they always want to go karaoke with you and they always want to see you a little bit drunk. Um, <laughs> And, and the key thing about that is, you know, their philosophy is that when you're a little bit drunk, you talk, you speak the truth and you tell it like it is. Uh, and they're listening intently as to what you say. Um, I did get very good men mentorship from, uh, I had a Chinese mentor who said to me, why do you drink? And I said, because you have to with them. And he said, you don't understand. Um, on those little shot glasses, fill them with water. Nobody will actually notice and drink the water and, you know, show that you may be a little bit drunk and nobody will know. And that was the best advice that I think I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, so I went to China. I was doing an executive MBA and, uh, and part of it was we went to China for, uh, I think, about two and a half weeks. And... Um, Boy, they can drink over there, and uh, I had a, I, I, I probably had one of my worst hangovers ever after our final yeah. night in Beijing. There, getting back on the plane to fly to Australia. Oh my god! So, and um, and what about uh, uh, you know, the industry? Obviously, you've been in this industry for a long time, and it, it's you know, it's such a dominant part of our lives now. You know, everybody carries a mobile phone, and everybody's you know completely enmeshed in this technology. Um, where do you see that as an industry going? Uh, what are the things that you're excited about for that industry? Look, I'm, I'm really excited about the intelligence and the connectivity that is being driven into devices per se. Um, and you can think of all sorts of things. Just, just my little garage door opener that you, that you go. I mean, there's a, there's a real user case there that, that gives people... Um, an advantage to how they operate from day to day because how many times do you drive down the road and your wife says to you, did you close the garage door, dear? And you go, I don't remember. And you have to drive it back and go check. <laughs> you know, So there, there's just an advantage there going, look on your phone and you can see whether you did or not. Um, and so they're, they're very definitely user cases which are driving 
the IoT marketplace. I, I'm excited about what is going to happen in that connected devices space and IoT. It's very much as its infancy. Um, and of course, you've got the big players like Google, Apple, um, Amazon with Alexa, uh, and now Toya coming in from the Chinese side, really starting to look at uh, how you pull everything together in one app that you can do everything with. Now, clearly, you can't do everything. But that space, that IoT connected space, I'm excited about. Um, I think the whole artificial intelligence area is another area which is really going to burgeon in uh, the next couple of years and start to show some real advantages. And you, you see it happening in, in places where big data is, is important. And clearly that would be the banks or the insurance companies, government, all those sorts of organizations that are dealing with uh, a huge amount of data coming in. Um, or a huge number of emails coming in and trying to sift them and sort them into a way that, that gives a proper service is, you know, a huge task. And AI is definitely going to be able to help in those areas and others. Mm. Um, so, so the whole connectivity, intelligence, getting that back to the human space to usable advantage, uh, I think is something that we're going to see really drive quite quickly now. Mm -hmm. Have you been watching what uh, Elon Musk is doing with Neuralink? His yes. business, right? Yeah. So uh, Neuralink, yeah. Uh, yeah. essentially embedding a uh, uh, sort of like computer um, uh, into your brain. And uh, I listened to him on a podcast recently. So obviously that was originally being developed to treat Alzheimer's and um, uh, other brain-related diseases like Parkinson's and so on. But he he was yeah. saying that he believes definitely within 10 years, but probably within five years, we won't even need to talk anymore. You know, I'll have my Neuralink <laughs> device and you'll have yours and we'll just communicate sort of telepathically through the cloud. So um, then you'll be able to open your garage door and, uh, and uh, everything just using your, your brain. Uh, yeah, God help, us. God help us if we don't have to talk. I mean, we don't meet anymore. We Zoom. Uh, yeah. and, and, and that's not the best thing in the world because I think that human contact is, is still an essential part to see the body language and, you know, kind of feel the vibe and et cetera. So, yeah. 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 It, it'll be that bridging, that bridging area. Right. And then, of course, artificial intelligence and the big concern about zero point singularity. Are you familiar with that? Uh, where artificial yes. intelligence takes over the world and human beings become redundant. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's so many fantastic things to come out of this, but there's, there's quite a few people are starting to say, maybe we need to slow down, slow down uh, and, uh, and take a bit of heat. And so, you know, now thinking about your portfolio career, so, um, uh, so firstly, you know, because we've known each other for a long time, uh, you know, I've, so impressed uh, with your ability to build out a portfolio so quickly. I talk to um, so many people who want board roles and, you know, yet five years later, they're still sitting there waiting to get a board role because they're expecting them to all sort of rain on their lap. Whereas you've really gone out there and given it a good shake. And, and I think, um, you know, uh, so firstly, you know, I'm very impressed by that. Um, in terms of thinking about the makeup of your portfolio, how considered were you about wanting to ensure that you had the right mix of board roles or was it more um, by chance? 
So I, I always say, you know, there's, there's two sides to this. There's a bit of luck. Um, but Gary Player said, you know, the more you practice, the more luck you get. Uh, and I think that's true. Um, but there is a bit of luck in it. Um, the, the other part of it, I was very considered about it. Um, it's a bit daunting up front when you go, right, I want to be, I want to do this non-executive career path. Uh, it, it, right up front, it's very daunting. You look at it and you go, where the hell do I start? Um, but I was considered about it in that one of the first places I started was getting the Deloitte's list of listed companies in Australia. And initially I started to concentrate just on Brisbane, but from advice from you, you know, these days you don't need to just concentrate in your domicile. You, you can go anywhere, uh, particularly with Zoom or Teams or whatever. Uh, so I broadened that. Uh, but then what I did was I went, what am I good at and who would need my skills? And clearly I'm not a miner. And you know, a good percentage of Australian companies are in that resources space. So I, I, I went through the spreadsheet and, and you know, did the, uh, did the sort and sifted out all resources companies. That brings the list down to a much more targeted approach. Um, and then you look at, am I uh, property development? No, I'm not property development. So let's get rid of those, those groups. And so eventually you end up with probably a list of, I don't know, two to 300, mm -hmm. uh, which is still a daunting list to go contact, uh, but at least it's much more focused. Um, and then basically I just reached out to the top of the pile and went to the chairman of each one of those companies uh, and started to create uh, at least a link with them on LinkedIn. Mm. Uh, and as you said to me, um, these guys are there to help. They're, they're open to a proper approach. Uh, I mean, obviously it needs to be professional. It needs to be considered. But uh, the number of people that accepted my uh, invitation was uh, astounding. Mm. Um, so th that was really good. Um, but then I also used my personal connect, uh, connections and, and network. Mm -hmm. uh, and just started to talk to the guys and go, this is what I'm doing. And one conversation leads to another. And they, you know, maybe one says, yeah, I like, like the Harris one, where I said to him, this is what I'm doing. He said, well, let's talk about it. You know, mm -hmm. what can you do for me? Uh, and as the conversation went, uh, it ended up on me going on the board. And then once I was on the board, he looked at me and he said, you should be the chairman. And that's when I got appointed chairman. So it, it kind of snowballs on itself. Um, and thank you for the advice in that respect. It's, it's worked out well. Well, folks, you probably, we've had a little technical glitch and uh, Alan's uh, earbuds have run out of batteries. So we've, uh, we've changed our recording techniques. So if it sounds a little different, uh, my apologies, but uh, let's continue the conversation. So Alan, what we were talking about was, um, uh, you know, the fact that you did reach out to these chairs and, and you know, largely they were very happy to hear from you and they wanted to engage with you because, you know, fundamentally they're interested in people who can uh, solve their problems and take away their pain. You know, and as you said with Harris, you went and, uh, you know, spoke to the managing director or the relevant person there and you demonstrated to him. He asked you, what can you do for us? And as a result of that, he put you on the board. And as a result of that, you know, you became the chair. So um, I'll have to make you my uh, my post 
my poster person, um, I shouldn't say poster boy <laughs> anymore, but, you know, um, this is how it works, folks. If you want to get board roles or indeed executive roles, just do what Alan did. Um, okay, cool. So uh, so now here we are. It is um, uh, mid-September 2021. Uh, COVID is, you know, um, still very much uh, in the news every day, although it seems that our vaccination rates are finally getting up to where they need to be. So if you look out to the future for yourself, Alan, what are you excited about? So um, I'm excited about kind of building out my board portfolio. Uh, I think that it's a, it's a journey. Um, and what I am finding about board portfolios is it, it moves. It's dynamic. And one will come on and one will go away. And the other thing that happens with them is uh, two of them may be uh, very dormant and you, you, you're kind of getting paid for it, but you're not doing a lot. And then suddenly two of them will pop up and be absolutely full on. Um, so it, it kind of moves around quite a lot and, and you have to get used to managing that. Um, and in fact, on, uh, uh, on Champions Forum, I went out and talked to the guys about you know, how do you do that? And I got some good advice there in terms of managing time. So you, you have to manage your time really well. But in terms of what I'm excited about is, is really building that portfolio into uh, probably some bigger roles. Um, and that would be particularly in, in ASX area. Um, and in particular, where I'm interested in is uh, M&A. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I really think that when you're on the board, you should be involved in the M&A uh, activity of the company. Uh, it, it's very interesting work, uh, and, and actually it can develop something very significant for the company that you're dealing with. So I find it fun, and I am doing, I'm probably involved at the moment in uh, three M&A activities with uh, some of the organizations that I'm working with. Okay. So that's an exciting area. And what about if a, uh, a big juicy uh, CEO gig came along? You know, you've, have you got the petrol in the tank for another one of those or you feel very committed to your portfolio career now? I, if, if a big CEO role came along, which uh, was, you know, very much akin to my uh, skills and where I could add value, um, I, would, I would certainly look at it for... Uh, a period, uh, and you know, clearly that would be at my stage of life, uh, maybe another five uh, to ten years, um, and then that would kind of be me done and dusted. Right. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I would uh, certainly look a uh, big one. That's good, Alan. And um, you know, obviously today we've talked a lot about business and your professional history and so on. But you know, tell us a little bit about um, Alan. You know, what he gets up to when he's not working. When I'm not working, uh, my wife keeps me very busy with uh, grandchildren, of which I've got three. Uh, They're an absolute delight. Uh, Love them dearly. Uh, You don't actually realize until you've got grandchildren uh, how special they are. Right. One is almost the embodiment of my one daughter. (laughs) So I can kind of see such a similarity between the two. Uh, It's great fun. Uh, and then I have a uh, I have a boat which I spend a fair amount of time on, um, and you know with a boat that it's never just the boat you don't get on it and go uh, go away and sail. 
uh, it needs uh, maintenance, it needs work, it needs to be cleaned, it needs lots of love and attention. Mm -hmm. And um, I think they say that boat stands for bring on another thousand. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I, most of my friends who own boats uh, have very similar stories to tell. And uh, and when we can final finally return to travelling overseas, um, where are you most excited about going to? Japan skiing. Uh huh. <laughs> and back and back home. Uh, well, I have two homes now. I'm, I'm both Australian and dual citizen South Africa. So I guess I can call South Africa home. I am excited about going back home and uh, seeing some of my, uh, my relatives, my sisters and, uh, and my wife's relatives. So, yeah, it, it's been a long time. Um, my wife's mom passed away during the COVID period and we couldn't get back, which was a bit rough. But, yeah, it'd be good to get back. Sure. Yeah, I imagine that would be uh, devastating to, uh, you know, lose a very close loved one and not be able to travel there. Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, this is the world we live in, isn't it? So, uh, yeah. but anyway. All right. Well, Alan, look, um, thanks for your time today. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks, Richard. And I uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Yes. Okay. Hey. Goodbye. Hey. Thank you for joining us on the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncoverthehiddenjobmarket.com to register your details. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.